Hello guys and welcome back to episode three, I think, of the Grave News Podcast. Woo! We apologise in advance if this sounds slightly off. We're a bit tired. I'm a bit ill. Oh, what have you got? Like just a bit, I don't know. I've gotten back to college and everything's decided to catch up with me. So I've decided what a dreaded plague. How's your week been? It's been alright. I think it's my second week back. My head of sixth form is having his baby, so he's not in. So that's putting my university applications on a bit of a plateau because he's meant to be helping. Yeah. But he is selfishly raising <laughs> child um, when he could be raising me. How's your week? <laughs> um, it's been all right. First week back at college, so it's a horrific readjustment period of too much work. Not enough time, and it's not even my full workload, so it's fun. Is it just me? Or like, is it just my college where the teachers are really overzealous in like the first couple of weeks of like, yeah, I set loads of homework, and then you get to like October, and they've just given up and they're setting nothing. But it's like in the first mm. few days, you get like three hours of homework every day. No, nah, mine's just consistently hellish, to be honest. Also, I've got a little, I've got a little something to share. I haven't actually told you about this yet. Mm-hmm. Um. It's a bit off topic, but it's archaeology theme, so it fits. Did I ever mention I did a poster competition with St. John's? Yes, for your, like, um, ancient Egyptian poster thing. Yeah, it was on ancient Egyptian religion, right? Mm-hmm. I won best presentation. Woo! Which is a bit mental. So that was quite cool. That made Hell my day. Yeah. Are you going to add that into your little personal statement? I've got, I, think, I think I might have to, because I've mentioned that I've entered it. I just need to... Mentioned that I oh, want yeah. something for it. You've mentioned that you've entered it. You go, yeah, I entered, and I won. I won, but yeah, I actually need to edit that because mine's due in on Friday, and it's not ready. Have you got any kind of like prize, or is it just bragging rights? I think I get book tokens, but they haven't appeared. Ooh, <laughs> book tokens. How much? I don't know. We shall see. <laughs> Give you a fiver. <laughs> <laughs> You're at this competition, you actually go, they present you with a 20 pence piece. Now, would I still be 20p richer? Yes, I would. Well, how much did you spend on trying to make your little presentation with, like, paper? Oh, I spent too long. I spent I spent an entire Sunday trying to record my PowerPoint presentation because I can't speak properly. Especially when I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like the almost profession for me. <laughs> Anyway, should we jump into it? I, th- I think we should. Right, so this is your week this week, so I'm very much questioning and not knowing very much about this topic, but Delightful. there is something about uh, Swedish so- Swedish soldiers, Swedish warriors, and then yeah. the separation of gender. Yeah, um, one in particular. So I we mentioned it last week, I think, about Viking women. And how actually they were quite similar to ancient Egyptian women and how that links into the discussion of was ancient Egypt an outlier yeah, or was it the ancient world was just better than we are. And something that I found this week during my research was um, a couple of quotes on the matter talking about how Viking women could own property. Uh, They could inherit and they could become powerful merchants. And the quote then says that, of course, gave security and a level of independence, Um, which is very similar to the discussions we had about um, ancient Egypt, where one of the most significant things was the ability to like own property and start a business. Yeah. 
So I thought that was a very interesting parallel. Yeah, no, it, sorry, it definitely, um, it definitely kind of brings into light the fact that it's not as modern. I think we touched on this last week, but it's not as modern a concept as we think it is to mm. have quite, quite. I want to say quite modern, but it's the same idea, quite contemporary ideas about women, women's rights mm. in society. I say, it's a, like you say, it's another brilliant demonstration that I don't think it was that much of an outlier than people think it is today. And one, uh, I believe, archaeologist historian, Dick Harrison, has said that, quote, what has happened in the past 40 years through archaeological research, partly fueled by feminist research, is that women have been found to be priestesses and leaders, too. And he says this has forced us to rewrite history. And I think this is a really interesting point, especially um, related to a lot of the Viking research, because a lot of the time there you would find graves either the skeleton like wouldn't really be there or there would be a skeleton and you wouldn't even look at it you'd just look at the archaeological context go man yeah and then leave it at that so in as he says the last 40 years these things have been reevaluated, and we've just found woman after woman in these contexts and there is the concept of rewriting history however even in the written record which is something we discussed last week the written record of the vikings is largely fictitious with their epics and their stories that they pass down but they mainly feature women they feature these shield maidens and these valkyries there are a lot of women in there they have strong powerful gods a lot of the stuff that we have about the vikings written by the vikings is you know false it's stories because they loved a good tale yeah there are women in there and that i i don't want to say that it feels true but you know what i mean it feels yeah. inspired by their lives if you didn't have women why were you writing these strong female individuals on the battlefield yeah definitely i mean it it, it shows i think because even even in society today you see that our literature and our arts will reflect the ideas and perceptions that we have in our world anyway i think it's i don't think that would have changed i don't want to apply geology here but theory of uniformitarian uniformitarianism everything that happens now happened in the past so if we've got the same ideas about how our literature and how our arts are affected i don't think i don't see a reason why that wouldn't carry over exactly because if you look at you know the times of the past like you know, the Victorian era and that stuff, when they, and the Victorians, of course, were the people who mainly wrote what we know about the Vikings. I say that the epics are what we have about the Vikings from the Vikings, because a lot of the other stuff that we have about the Vikings is actually from the Victorians. Right. And they did this horrible thing about history where they just took Victorian ideals and went, everyone has always been like we are now, and just applied that to the past. Yeah. Um, but if you look at, things that were written in the Victorian era you had very few female characters and very few who were strong and that reflected the way that their society was run so it's interesting to think about if the Viking literature features these woman warriors and these female heroes would that be a reflection of their society and the way that they were living yeah I mean this is um some of the questions I was kind of thinking is you've got this development from not really knowing and then suddenly knowing 
a lot about these graves and the people in them. Mm. But was their status, was their um, power almost, was it normal for the period? Did it mm. go against the expectations that the Vikings had at their time? Mm. This is a discussion that we can get a lot more into once we've discussed like the grave that we're going to. Because yeah. there are a lot of questions about this specific grave. Right, and okay. where it fits into like Viking society. And speaking of Viking society, we can move forward to the society that specifically this individual belonged to. Berka Hofgarten. Yep, so you've put this down as Sweden's first actual town? Yeah, that's what they call it on their website. <laughs> it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, so it has like a lot of tourism. Yeah. And on Sweden's a little website for it. They call it their first town. I think it was, it is genuinely one of their first urban centres. It was founded in the mid-8th century on, I can't pronounce any of these things, but, you know, Bjorko Island uh, in Lake Maralen, Maloren, and it was called Berka. Quite similar to the lake's name. It's just quite fun. I, for, I haven't actually researched if it means anything. I probably should have done um, it's believed that the Swedish king formed this city as part of a desire to control the trade in the north of Scandinavia, both politically and economically. And we know this, that there were a lot of trade um, deals happening in this area right. because of extensive archaeological evidence. We've got Arabic silver, Eastern European beads and ceramics found from all over the world. And this is one of the interesting things about the Vikings, because everyone sort of looks at them as just going to places and killing people whereas when you actually look at it they had extensive trade routes all over the globe yeah and it's really interesting because there was a lot more to them than meets the eye and similarly in burka contrasting to the idea that you know you were just going places and killing people it was actually quite a craftsman city it wasn't yeah. really a community full of warriors there are a lot of smiths and comb makers and stuff like that so it was it was an urban centre that was really quite advanced for its time and having a really interesting time about it. It was then abandoned during the 10th century. And according to Burka's website itself, they don't really know why. Um, but according to some other sources, a Christian town was founded about 35 kilometres away and everyone moved there because Christianity was coming in in the 10th century and they went, mm, Burka's boring, we're going to go to this fun place. They've got a big cross on the top of the hill. Right. No, because this is, this again, this is one of the things I have because what, did, was it the draw of Christianity? Was it just the effect that they had to kind of convert people? Because I don't know, obviously you had, you had Viking religion. Mm. Were people that absorbed by it or was Christianity a completely new concept and idea? Christianity had been sort of spreading through the Vikings, hadn't it? You know, they'd found it in many places at that point. Because it's it's been around for, you know, a thousand years at the moment, because in the tenth century you're in about a thousand. It was invented in, you know, zero or about thirty when Jesus really stopped being a baby and started being a man. Yeah, um, <laughs> Not in like a derogatory way, just like a he aged kind of way. Um, I'm not, that's the thing about like, why did everyone move to Sigtuna? And why was it built so close to Burka? And there are some theories that there was like a land rise or some kind of problem with one of the hills around that meant the people left. 
I wasn't really too sure about that. But I think the, the thing about Christianity is, in many ways, I don't, this is complete waffle from my end. Bit less work, innit? <laughs> yeah, what they, um, Viking tradition? Yeah. I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of religions that sort of took a lot of effort. Whereas Christianity, and it sort of seeped in very slowly, and it was quite easy to acclimatise to. You know, because you had merchants who were making Thor's hammers one way, and then you turn it up the other, it's a cross. Right. It sort of slipped in and took over in a really weird way. I think as well, as people started thinking about mythology and making discoveries scientifically, you know, there wasn't that much of it in the 10th century, but still, you know, present. Yeah. That I think there was sort of a feeling that Christianity was more in this world, but this is, again, complete rubbish, and I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, no, but I do, I, I do see your point because I don't know that much about Norse tradition, but it very much does focus around Thor and about the great gods of the sky. And comparatively to the Christianity, I think it's probably got a little more real world touch to it, Christianity, mm. because you've got the interaction of what everybody presumed at the time to be a normal man who could then perform miracles. Mm. And this is very much boiling the Bible down to basics here. Um, <laughs> But you see, I think you see a much more. Uh, it's a, Jesus had a greater influence mm-hmm. on societies, according to what the Bible said. And if that story is carried through, I'm inclined to think that was probably what attracted people towards mm-hmm. this sort of area. Because if Christianity came in and somebody wanted to take the urban population that, as you say, were very developed for their time anyway. Mm-hmm and take that away from kind of Norse tradition and Norse ideas and introduce them to Christian ideas, whether they were proselytizers, I'm assuming so. So I imagine that probably had quite a large effect on the people in these towns to move and gain the benefits of Christian life. I've had a fun little thought about it because the Vikings had many gods. And as I was saying, it would be harder to, you know, deal with all that. And as well, it's a very warlike mythos compared yeah. to especially the New Testament uh, Christian belief. So if you've got a town full of craftsmen, people who aren't actually the warriors who are reflected in the Valhall tradition, oh yeah, it's going to be easier for you to go, oh yeah, this, this man was a woodworker, you know, as compared to all these guys are warriors. Yeah. You're going to see yourself reflected more in this religion. Yeah, that's right. So that true. might have something to do with it, like the temp, just the temperament of these Vikings compared to, you know, the more warlike parties who were probably going to cling on to their paganism much longer because it just reflected them better than it did these guys. Yeah, and I, the the other thought that kind of came to me, you were saying that they had a very advanced trade system. Mm. Now, for me, the probably most complex trade system I knew of before this time was the Roman one. But even mm-hmm. still, that only stretched from the Mediterranean to Britain and as far as probably the Middle East now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I don't know how how extensive the Viking one was. But if that system is developed independently from the Roman Empire, would those traditions and those trade routes have continued into Christian Europe? And therefore, would, they, would those people, because they're tradesmen, 
they have better access to resources, better mm. access to tools, would that then attract them to these cities to gain that trade that they potentially didn't have before? Obviously, mm. I don't know if they did or not. Yeah, I think it would be about during your trade, because this was a very sort of multicultural hub. Yeah. You would find people with these beliefs and you would sort of settle down with them and think, hmm, yeah, I agree with this, actually, rather than... Because as well, you, you were talking about earlier the Vikings very centred on Thor. They were centred on a lot of gods and they've got nine realms and you've got a fish, not a fish, a massive snake circling the world and the, the, the world is on a sort of tree with nine points on it. Yeah. It is a lot, from the modern perspective, it's a lot simpler to look at the world from a Christian perspective of the world is as it is. And there's also a god compared to the world is it's got a tree and we're part of nine realms and there's a rainbow bridge and we're having a great time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. But no, I think that's that's another brilliant example of how kind of developed this ancient world was and how they were a lot more connected than I think most people expect them to be. Mm. And yeah, as you say, I think pretty Christianity rather than trade maybe it was just a lot easier to follow and a lot less stress on people mm. especially if vikings were getting to that point i i'm guessing they had quite colonial sort of attitudes towards things as well if people mm. were just tired of warfare that or the entire time because we we see that a lot in um kind of british societies to be fair a pretty better example the soviets during world war one mm. i wonder if people maybe started to get fed up of their constant war attitude. Then again, you know better than me. So <laughs> I'm on I'm waffling on the spot. <laughs> I think that is quite a good point. Um that as you move away because during I don't know the specific dates in the timeline of the Vikings, but I think there was a sort of point where they not that they stopped going out and fighting people, but they stopped sort of invading places and that and they did sort of settle down. Yeah. And I think once you've stopped invading everywhere, your need for these gods who support you through battle sort of fades. And what you want is a slightly more benevolent kind of vibe. But then again, there is the question when we look at the spread of Christianity about how do we know how effectively it's spread? And we know that because of what monks wrote. And if monks are going to write about, Christian monks are going to write about the spread of Christianity, what they're going to talk about is how effectively it spread and how it spread everywhere and how it was great. Yeah. So in many ways, it is quite hard to say how much sticking parrot had and how comforting it was for people and how great it was without just believing the word of Christians in the modern day and, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah, and I mean, it's the same issue you encounter in a lot of written sources, is, uh, especially from kind of uh, Christian monks who probably were a lot more well-educated edu than probably their Norse counterparts, is the, assumption I'm get is the presumption I'm getting. You will have, but you will have biased sources that you've got to try and untangle. And I think if you're only getting perspective from one side, you'd have... That's the brilliant thing about archaeology. You have to look at other things to get the full picture of it. Yeah, because we simply... 
I think I'm I'm not sure, but I think I'll say pretty confidently we don't have anywhere the point of view of an actual Viking who's going, This is why I've converted, this is why I haven't. Because they just didn't have that writing culture. It was all oral yeah. tradition. And once the opinions change, the oral tradition is gone and we don't have any real proof of it. Which is a real shame. It's one of those things that if I had a time machine. <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah, definitely. But that it's I think you see that in quite a few cultures. It's not just the Vikings that pass things through orally. And once, mm. a, once a more colonial force or stronger force comes in and pushes their ideas on a society, you do lose those traditions. Mm. So to move on from... Oh, very long discussion about Christianity. I do apologise. Let's actually get to our topic of today. <laughs> now, this is your team, BG, BJ, BG, BJ581. BJ? <laughs> yeah, BJ581. So, during, speaking of the Victorians, um, oh, no. having their opinions on things, uh, during the Victorian era, approximately 1,100 graves in Burka were excavated by quite, in my opinion, quite a cool guy. Uh, he was an entomologist, an archaeologist, and an ethnographer, and he was Hjalmar Stolper. And fun fact about Hjalmar, he was one of the first archaeologists to use graph paper for field drawings. Blimey. Just, Just quite a fun fact about him. He is famed for his meticulous excavations. This will come up later. It is relevant. Remember that Hjalmar is a very cool guy who labels his bones with India ink. Remember this. Right, I will. I promise. <laughs> now, just one question before we move on. Obviously, was he... It's Victorian era, but I assume he wasn't affected by Victorian ideas. He didn't really interpret the graves. That's sort of right. the thing about Hjalmar. He dug stuff up, labelled it, and then left it alone. To be fair, he, this, it's not like he was putting pre- prejudices on it then. Yeah, pre- pretty legendary, to be fair, as opposed to all the people who went, and I have made the greatest discovery of all. Hjalmar just went, I found some stuff. Let me put it down. In one of the ways, though, that he and the people around him were affected by Victorian ideas, when this grave, BJ581, was found, it was assumed that it was male. Yeah. And it was assumed for like 130 years, and that just prevailed. Yeah. I can't blame that on Hjalmar, though. I'm willing to forgive him for that. <laughs> <laughs> I will forgive Hjalmar. Um just because I, I like the way that he's famed for his meticulousness. I just think it's very cool of him. And he did a lot of digging. A th- like, over a thousand graves is a lot for, like, there one is. guy. So, very proud of him. So, 581 is a chamber grave, um, which is a type of grave that is widespread in Burka, Denmark, so- southeastern parts of Norway, and some bits of Germany. Um, and they're mainly found around the early urban centres. So this is why it's like at Burka. And chamber graves are basically big old boxes of wood yeah. that you put your dead in. It's like a massive coffin. Sometimes they're buried, sometimes they're on like plinths and stuff. This one was about three and a half metres long 
and like one and three quarter meters wide. Yeah. It was marked by a large boulder and was on a sort of nice little elevated terrace. So a bit, I don't know if you would have heard of this, but a bit like the Egyptian mustabas then. They're basically mud brick temp, uh, funerary mm. temples. They just kind of stood up, came mm. out of the ground and were just left. Yeah, it's just, I think every culture sort of has like this mausoleum yeah. uh, tradition. Yes, you're right, you're right, yeah. For the corpse. Um, so is there, can I ask, is, is there a significance about the position of the grave? Were they commonly found on top of hills to be looking over societies or was it, were they more hidden away? The chamber graves are normally associated with wealth. Um, because obviously if you're more wealthy you're going to have more effort to put in your grave Um, which is why they were found around the urban centres the location of the grave was also likely to denote things about the person in it Um, for example this one was found in connection to an old garrison structure that the Vikings had so that again implies that this is a military grave because it's found in the sort of military sector of the city-ish yeah So in this grave, uh, there was an individual who had been placed in a sitting position and they were wearing silk garments with silver thread. So wealthy then. Quite fancy, yeah. Uh, Presumed to be, or after analysis and comparison to other sources, some kind of cavalry commander. And quote from an article that I found from the Cambridge Press, under the immediate authority of a royal war leader. I honestly don't know how they know this or how they know the uniforms of the Vikings. <laughs> um, you know, I'll take their word for it, I guess. And that the cavalry thing does make sense because in the grave, uh, there was also a mare and a stallion buried. So there's oh. two horses as well. Yeah. Um, there's a sword, an axe, a spear, armor piercing arrows, a battle knife, and two shields as well. So she's, they're really decked out, this individual. Yeah, yeah. You've got a lot of stuff. You've also got a game, bo- a game board and game pieces. I wasn't actually able to find what they were made of because um, what Nefertafel game pieces are made of is very relevant to the individual. Right, um, okay. From looking at pictures of them, I think they were like either clay or possibly bone from the look of it but that's just like judging by eye they look is that by is that the board as well or just the pieces the game board would normally be like rock or wood right i did not see any pictures of the game board i was quite upset by that but nefertafel um is a really interesting game because it's very very significant to viking culture and it was often found on you know the the boat burials where you bury someone in a boat it's found on like the lap of the individual and that's the same here. It was found in the lap of the individual. Can I ask, is that Sutton Hoo territory? Is Sutton Hoo Viking? I don't think I it don't is. Remember. I, I don't, don't think remember. Sutton, I think Sutton Hoo is Saxon. It might well be. If I was looking apologies. at Sutton Hoo helmet today. You can buy a replica for like 300 quid. I, <laughs> <laughs> I do not have them. I was looking at buying swords and then they were like, we also sell helmets, including the Sutton Hoo one. And I was like, oh my God. Um... <laughs> Jane's interest, everybody. Yeah, I've got plans for my 18th. I'm buying a sword. Oh, not a Viking Jealous. one, though. They're too big for me. <laughs> I'm a very small person. My limit for a blade is 82 centimetres before it starts getting weird. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> if 
very interesting game. They made pieces out of anything. They could make it. They made them out of amber. We found and stuff yeah. like that. One of the most interesting things about Nefertapel, you can cut this out because it's absolutely awful, is we don't know how it was played, but we have theories. I'm keeping this in. This is great. People associate it with chess because there are two kings and then little pieces. Yeah. Um, but it's probably nothing like chess because that is just the modern idea of what a board game is being applied to the past. It's probably n- nothing like chess at all. Yeah. And there is evidence in one, I believe it's another epic, about how the it's about the offense uh, i think it's about the one of the sides is a f- acting offense and one of them is acting defense of their king right so it's like the two sides play differently that's one of the things that was written but what we know even if we don't know the rules we don't know how the pieces move we know that this is a game about war and about strategy yeah and we know that this is a game that is very important to the vikings and it also symbolizes that whoever is buried with it has time in their day to play. Yeah, and that is true. One of the things that denotes wealth, having like leisure time. Yeah. And where it's a game about war and about strategy, and there is connection between finding Nefertafel and finding loads and loads of weapons and stuff. Yeah. Being in a boat burial, the connection has been made many times that Nefertafel is a sign of a strategic military leader. Yeah. Makes this individual, in accordance with the outfit, some kind of leader. Yeah. And some kind of um, military... I hesitate to say officer, because I'm not really sure how their you know battle ranks worked, but someone like that, who's making plans, who's very involved. Yeah. Moving away from Nefertafel, the slight, what other people would consider more interesting stuff, like the, the swords and the daggers. The source I could find for this appeared to be that it was done for a documentary for PBS, because there was the same citation in a lot of articles, and when I tried to follow it, it just took me to the video page for a video I <laughs> on PBS. So... I can't back this up, but I assume PBS genuinely did analyse the weapons and apparently found that the weapons had been used in battle. Yeah. Um, and they were not ceremonial pieces. So, again, showing that this is an individual who, if presuming these are their weapons, has fought, has done this, and a quote about this grave says that it was the complete equipment of a professional warrior. And the assumption is that they are a cavalry, I would say officer, just because it's the modern word we can best apply. Yeah. Who thinks strategically and has lived in this urban centre and is very presumably well off. Yeah. However, the big issue around this, which leads us on quite nicely, Mm. is the assumption that people made is that they were male. Yes. Because you obviously can't have this well-off strategist and warrior who is anything but a man or a biological male. Yeah. How on earth could that work? Well, someone had a problem with this in the 1970s. (laughs) I I couldn't find a source of it. I tried to look and it was all just sort of written that someone doubted it in the 70s. Don't know who, don't know where, just someone doubted it. Um, 
And then in 2014, um, Stockholm University did an osteological analysis. And the fact, can I just, the fact that it was excavated in the like 18, the late 1800s, and it took until 2014 for anyone to do basic osteolo- osteological analysis on the pelvic bones and mandible. Is that the, um, sorry, is that bone analysis and that it's like identifying gender from bones? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not even, not even like ADNA, not even chromosomes, just actually picking up the pelvis and going, that is a feminine notch, that is a feminine mandible. Yeah, that is mental. It took until 2014 for someone to actually just look at the bones, not even do anything sciencey to it, just look. Well, forget the 70s, 2014 is the real revolution here. Yeah, in 2014, Stockholm University, good on them, found that the bones were female. They also found that the bones had been hidden away in a back cupboard for the last 200 years. <laughs> yeah, people went, we're going to deal with that later. And then it was decided um, that this, you know, this wasn't proof enough. Because normally, if you looked at it, you'd think, yeah, that was female. But you know what? We found it in a really weird position. We're not going to believe it. So then they did in September of 2017 um, some DNA analysis uh, from a tooth and an arm bone. And I could talk about the team but i'm very worried about trying to pronounce the swedish name so i'm just not going to uh, but she's a very cool scientist <laughs> no go on try it head dense dina johnson's or that's Johnson? not bad to be fair so i'm trying my best head and sterner yeah very possibly but this team extracted dna from samples of a tooth and an arm bone and they found two different x chromosomes and no y quote, conclusively proving that the bones were that of a female. Hurrah. We've and, reached the... <laughs> yeah. And apparently this was controversial. And the conclusion of the study was that the individual in BJ581 is the first confirmed female high-ranking Viking warrior. Now, the relevant part there is high-ranking because before this, there had been found women in weapon graves. Yeah. But never with the Nefertafel, never with the horses, that kind of yeah. silver-threaded cap. You know, so this is the first time that we found someone who is going to be a real bigwig in the world of their military, and who is also yeah. a woman. Yeah, now, one of the main questions I had about this is, obviously, you said there's other graves that have been found, but not of as high rank. Mm. How many other graves? Are there any others that they think might have been misgendered? The thing is, there could be a lot. Right. Because as I was saying, one of the things about Viking research is that a lot of the time, the Victorians dug stuff up, went, I found a sword, I found a man, and then whacked it in a cupboard somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. And just put it in the vault without really looking at it. So for anything really that hasn't been osteologically analyzed there is room for it to be a woman there and the ones that have been analyzed come back a lot of the time they are male but sometimes they aren't yeah and a lot of the time these graves you know the soil stuff the bones decompose because you know it was also like over a thousand years ago and so often so there isn't even a body in the grave and the, again, the, the assumption is, oh, well, there's not a body, but, you know, it was a man. Really, we don't know. And I'm not going to say that, you know, we these were probably women. I'm not even going to say 
that they probably were or were not. But the thing is that we don't actually know and making any kind of assumptions without evidence. You would say it's problematic, but no one really seems to care when it comes to Viking warrior graves. They just go, oh, man. Is that, is that because there's a lack of evidence almost? There's a, la- there's a lack of ability to be able to disprove that stereotype. Mm. Yeah, it is difficult because you've got to think about where the presumptions come from. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of the assumptions do come from, like, what the Victorians wrote on the subject, which was biased to their own standpoint. But then, again, a lot of it comes from the fact that graves that we have found and have analysed are male, you know? Yeah. But there are also quite a few that aren't. And so it's it's difficult, because I, I don't want to be saying, you know, it was, you know, it was 50-50... <laughs> It was this, it was that, because we, we don't know that and you can't make any assumptions. Yeah. But what we do have is something that we've just got to have a bit of a more of an open mind to. And the evidence points in sort of all directions. Yeah. And I mean, it's a brilliant line of research that's been opened up, especially recently in recent years, where mm. you've got this focus on correctly identifying these areas Mm. now a lot of them as you say might well have been previously misunderstood misgendered however you want to put it they haven't Mm. been interpreted correctly and accurately Mm. and i think now it's very much coming into light of that it's in the context of a period where this is the focus of archaeology Mm. now it's not so much here's what i found here are all the treasures it's let's get down to the bottom Mm. of these societies and see what we can gain Mm. and it's a it's a brilliant transformation from something that was ultimately a collector's a collector's tale basically going i've got this i've got this i've got this mm. and therefore from my single sort i'm going to conclude it's man now you've got this thing where you're trying to understand the past through proper scientific research mm. and that i think this is a brilliant example it's one in a very very long chain recently of a large movement that will only become more accurate as the technology improves. Mm. As you say, DNA analysis is brilliant for this sort of stuff. You've got teeth enamel, which is now a very big thing. Mm. And I think if you can get anything to kind of show if there's stereotypes in the food they ate, that will show up. Mm. I, I do love isotope analysis. I just think it's really cool. I think I talked about this last time. I talk about it in my personal statement. I talk about it in my biology class. I think is just the coolest thing like ever because ox- oxygen isotopes the way they can tell you where the water you drank came from what kind of, the fact that it can tell you about the altitude people lived at the bloody weather patterns because there's yeah. different isotopes in different stages of the water cycle so you can see the different kind of if there were any massive fl- i just oh, that's so cool it's <laughs> It's mental, but like I said, it's that it's those sort of things which are so brilliant to be coming into an age now where we have that sort of technology at our disposal. Mm. I think that will only become more prevalent in the next 10, 20 years. Mm. And if you said there are the chances that these graves do have the potential for a large number of them to be misgendered, mm. I only think it will become more accurate and more pre- prevalent as to which ones are and which ones aren't. Mm. I think it is going to be really interesting to see as more actual um, analysis goes forward, 
what happens and what we do find because we do we do find traditional female burial from the vikings i think that that is something that's often skipped over there are yeah. women who are found you know with um what do you call it looms and stuff you yeah know, the, the feminine stuff from the household that is yeah. found in the tr- you know the traditional female role is confirmed yeah. been a thing that existed and there are you know these household domestic graves that women have but then they are also found in other places and there are there are men who are found without weapons and there are women who are found without weapons and it's there were different social classes yeah and their society was very complicated and again that's one of the things about the vikings i've said this many times people sort of dry the vikings down to warriors and to violence when that isn't who the vikings were they had a lot more to offer to the world than just yeah. that but that's the most sensational part so that's what people think about and that is an, another problem where people will then and we're sort of doing it now i mean you know the woman i've chosen to speak about from the viking age is presumably a warrior you know i say presumably because you know there are people arguing but that's because that's what's interesting that's what's fun to talk about yeah but there were women who weren't warriors and there were men yeah. who were warriors. And that's the thing, because I th- part of the thing about Vikings that people try to say when it comes to equality is about how for women to have been equal in the Viking age, they must have been warriors. I think that's quite difficult because I think they were. I think they were there and they existed. But as well, they didn't, they didn't have to be warriors. Yeah. And because, society is bigger than that warrior yeah, class. There were a lot of people who weren't warriors. There were a lot of men who weren't warriors. There were a lot of women who weren't warriors. They were traders. They were craftsmen. They were doing stuff. And the fact is that women were doing things outside of the home. And they were also doing things outside of the battlefield. So yeah. even if we don't have extensive proof of women in the military service of the Vikings, they were doing other stuff. And they were allowed to. And that is still... A feminist interpretation of the past that is positive without having to say oh we were on the same level as the men in the military because that isn't what needs to be we don't need to be doing the fighting if that makes sense i don't know if i've articulated myself no that's no i, th- I think that's very well put because like you said society is bigger than just the warrior classes mm-hmm. and if that's only the elitist class you're only looking at a minority of a civilization anyway Exactly. It's the, same, it's the same sort of issue we have with Egypt. Everybody focuses on the pharaohs. Mm. Something that we tried to do a little bit last week is shed the light on the ordinary people, the people mm. that aren't talked about. And there's there's always two sides to a story. You've got the elitist mm. class that we're talking about today, where you see the people that took the glory for, don't, don't get me wrong, big acts, they're big events. Yeah. But it's not the entirety of their society. and it's the mm. side, Their society isn't limited by the minority that ruled them. Mm. and i think unfortunately as is with all societies in archaeology you only really know the details of the elite because they were the ones mm. that, who could afford to leave their possessions behind and i think especially in the case of the vikings the the marauding ones were the ones who had things written about them because they were the ones going out and seeing the people 
who were literate. They were the ones yeah. going out and attacking the monks who were then writing the histories and going, oh my God, the Vikings are evil. Yeah. As opposed to Mr. Blacksmith hanging out in Burka. No one's writing tales about him. You yeah. know? No one's writing tales about the woman selling pins down the street. <laughs> he's, he's not out there slaughtering monks. No one cares. Yeah, but it's, it's a socialist approach that persists. They're not the people that, that they're writing myths about. And if there are stories about them, they're not the ones getting passed on to the other cultures. Because again, the, the Viking myths that we have are A, horribly reinterpreted. They're, they're nothing like what they were when the Vikings had them. I'm, you know, they're not, they're not going to be like the Vikings were because they've been translated like a million times. Yeah. And if there were any, and they're all really exciting. You know, they're really cool. The Vikings were very good at just telling really interesting stories. And one of the, one of the things about that was, if they had less interesting stories, we're not going to still have them. Because if you've got a really boring story from like 200 years ago, you're not going to keep telling it. <laughs> <laughs> so like the less warlike parts of Viking culture just sort of get forgotten. As Christianity comes in, it assimilates, it takes those less warlike parts and it rewrites it into their own history and it just yeah. the vikings get evaporated down into this sense of pure war and now i've got completely no way to go into judith's <laughs> disagreement with the female interpretation <laughs> <laughs> right for the record i'll keep that in because that's brilliant um <laughs> But no, the, to move on, because oh, I think we could sit here and discuss how history is horrifically biased. That's <laughs> no, fine. Listen, history is just horrifically biased. But yeah. to move on, Judith Jet is it Jesh from the University of Nottingham? I don't know. I have no idea. No, she's um Viking studies professor. Mm. What is she, what's she arguing? So she is from the University of Nottingham. And she argues that as the grave was excavated in 1889 or 1888 or 1878, depending on what source you're looking at, who knows, but I got 1889 from her blog post, uh, bones may have been mixed together. Oh no. We could have, we could have got them mixed up, you know, who knows? Was that dude meticulous? Was the dude meticulous? Oh, I don't know. Did he, did he mark his bones with India ink? Was he famous for how meticulous he was with his excavations? Oh, I told you to remember it, didn't I? (laughs) I won't have anyone slagging off my man Hjalmar. (laughs) I won't have anyone dragging my man Hjalmar's name through that unmeticulous mud. I wrote in my notes in all caps that man was meticulous because I'm really passionate about Hjalmar. Um, Judith Yesk, might be Yesk, Jesk, I'm not sure, um, also states that the inference that she was a high-ranking warrior because of finding game pieces buried in the grave is, and I quote, premature speculation, and that the researchers have not considered other reasons for a female warrior, to a female body to be in this warrior's tomb. Now, before we move on, first question about this, was it tradition for families to be buried together? Because that's the immediate conclusion I draw. Excellent question. Well, they didn't find any other 
corpses in this um right okay in this tomb and the thing about this is that if it were a family everyone would have some stuff of their own yeah and one of the weirdest things about 581 is that there is absolutely nothing feminine buried in this grave right there is nothing traditionally associated with a female corpse so that would suggest that there isn't gonna it's really weird that if she has been put in this chamber and she didn't own like the horses and the stuff it was not she was buried with nothing of her own also she's wearing the clothes (laughs) yeah just the point, she's been dressed up in a weird costume that isn't her own. She's been buried with nothing of her own stuff. And she's in such a position compared to all the grave goods that it's not like she was off to the side and there was another guy in the middle. It She is... Unless it's been reused. That's the only thing I can yeah. think of. Because I don't, I don't agree with the conclusion that's been drawn here that it wasn't a biological woman. But... The, the, like the only counter argument I kind of think of to bear it, like it's been, been reused. reused and this corpse doesn't belong there why is it been put in a horse grave with a cavalry costume on <laughs> yeah why have they dressed her up like that if she's yeah no I agree with you I agree with you. It? it's it's a it's quite hard to answer and you know there are other interpretations there are other questions but they are full of holes in many yeah. ways and yeah. it's at a certain point it just kind of boils down to Occam's razor of you know the simplest explanation you know we don't want to make assumptions but if you're going to draw a conclusion draw the simple logical conclusion of the body that is in this grave that is for the right? record was not challenged as belonging in that grave for 130 years <laughs> <laughs> had gone oh yeah this body's a bit weird to be in that grave and then they'd found out it was a woman sure but when people go yeah that is an iconic grave that body belongs there and then only when you've done some analysis on it you go did not belong (laughs) then it just becomes a bit iffy that you had no problem with it before yeah, but that's a brilliant example of conservative <laughs> attitudes, isn't it? Like, at the minute something goes yeah. against the status quo, what people expect, you will have people questioning it. And that's that's another problem that I have with... Because there, there was criticism in general. I'm not just attacking Judith here. There yeah. were other, like, um, people criticising it. It's just that she's got the really long blog post about it, so it's easiest to just, like, take um, from hers. Because what Judith says... And what, you know, others said was that it was too much of a, quote, premature speculation to say that she was a a high ranking warrior based on the game pieces. And she does later say that, um, quote, this is just like a direct quote, lifting some sentences from her. Was it possible, for example, for a biological woman to have been buried with a full, in quotes, warrior accoutrement, even if she had not been a warrior in life? After all, archaeologists are always cautioning us that the dead don't bury themselves, and they often seem not to like interpretations in which the deceased's grave goods are taken as representing their roles in life. Now, that is a point that I do not agree with, solely on the fact that if you find a male skeleton in a grave with (laughs) violent grave goods... I know where this is going. No one has a problem with the conclusion that he was a warrior. 
Yo. No one goes, oh, but what if he wasn't a warrior in life? What if he was just buried with this for like fun and giggles? You know, I'm really trying to keep down this way because <laughs> we didn't like it last time. So we've got fun and giggles. And no, no one has a problem with making these conclusions when it's a male skeleton. So why, as soon as you find out that this skeleton has two X chromosomes, yeah. does it become premature speculation and, you know, baseless claims and, oh, we can't make these assumptions. When you have been making these assumptions, and these assumptions have been a precedent of archaeology for a literal century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You find any skeleton with these... and. You know, she says that archaeologists don't seem to like the interpretations that grave goods are taken as representing their roles in life. Not sure that's really the case with Viking archaeology. I think a lot of the time, people find Viking graves, go, they've got these grave goods. This is who they were. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm slightly confused by that because I don't really understand where that's sort of coming from. But, again, it's just... If you find a male corpse in this setting, it's even specifically this corpse. Yeah. That's what I can't get over. Specifically this corpse. When it was assumed to be a male corpse, everyone was like, yep, warrior. <laughs> and then you got, it's a female corpse, actually. <laughs> Not a warrior. <laughs> Something no, else but... entirely. It's like, what do you mean? No, but again, Why? unfortunately, it's sexist tradition, isn't it? Like, but <laughs> on just the point that you were making about like the um grave goods like they you use them to interpret their life mm. especially for the viking society I, the impression i get is it's the only real materials we get yeah. for information about their lives mm, because they they didn't really have that written tra written history tradition yeah so what we have to do is look at the grave goods and make society from that yeah so it is sort of one of the things that we that we have to do and i i am genuinely interested in her statement on that because she is a professor of viking studies and i want to know like maybe how the the university of nottingham deal with like viking studies and that kind of thing because yeah the assumptions about like profession and warriordom are like a big thing for when yeah. you find viking graves and i don't know if that like varies from like establishment and profession or what but i i just do find it genuinely really interesting like what why her take on it is like that or if it's just like a cover-all for misogyny <laughs> you know <laughs> maybe there is no maybe there is no backing to that and she just you know she's no i mean would it be i think the main thing is is because you see you see this quite a lot when somebody comes up with an idea that doesn't fit the status quo especially if somebody spent their life researching it and always had these perceptions those are the first people that will jump mm. on this new idea and deny yeah. it and go against the because it goes against the ideas and cultures that they themselves a lot of the time mm. have established mm. and whether that conclusion that it is a female because of the um evidence from the evidence from the corpse rather than evidence from the grave because it's so it might just come down to a te technological thing it's so new do people doubt it just because it's not what they're used to mm. Mm. Yeah, like I said, it's it's why it's one of those ongoing issues. I think you'll find it in a lot of archaeology that people won't accept things that go against their expectations. Mm, it is it is difficult. Going further down her blog post, uh, one genuinely really interesting thing um, that was brought up is that um, 
it was noted in the study by Stockholm University that there were no pathological or traumatic injuries observed on this skeleton. Right. And there were no like weapon related wounds on this body, which makes it weird for it to be a warrior. You know? How so, can I ask? Well, because if you're going to be a warrior and you're going to be in battle, you're going to get weapon wounds, aren't you? You're going to get stabbed or something. And then Judas... A lot of the time, would that only be flesh wounds? No? Well, this is this is, this is is a good question. But Judas goes on to talk about how this, this warrior... Is it likely that this warrior is so good that they never get hit? Um, but one of the things about this is that there are no weapon wounds on, like, any of the graves in Burka, including the men. So right. if... 581 isn't a warrior. Neither is anyone else from Burka. Yeah. Which, you know, could be actually true because, you know, it's an urban centre. They're not really warlike. It's not really this warlike community. And then the question is do they have like faux. But they did have a garrison. So they did have like warriors, but maybe they're not like actively going out and fighting people. Is this just sort of like a social class thing? You're like a warrior in status, but not in practice. Or, could I ask, and this is playing devil's advocate here, <laughs> did they die of things other than the immediate conclusion of warfare? I know they're buried near a garrison, mm. but say disease outbreak, could we find evidence of that? Mm. Or something yeah, similar? There, there, is no, there is no assumption that they, they died in in war. Are you, are you implying they sort of died like before they even got the chance? <laughs> no, like, my impression is if they're expecting... Um, graves. If they're, I'm wondering now if they're all of the same period or not. Because if they're all of the same period and they've all died without, like, um, wins at all, it to me anyway, it would imply that they haven't all died in the same combat. If they're from different times and it's a progression throughout, then I, I do, I am probably more inclined to agree that there is something more to this. I. I did not find anything that suggested that, which I think I, there would be. They were from varied times. Right, we know okay. that this is it's difficult to like age skeletons, like really yeah. effectively. But we know that the five eight one individual um, was above like the age of thirty. She was like fully an adult. So it's very yeah. possible that she just like lived her life to its end and then just yeah. know, died like a human person. It is. Because the graves were just sort of dotted, they were like just the dead of the community. I don't think it was disease. But one yeah. of the explanations for why at least 581, and I haven't actually looked that much into the other graves, because there isn't really that much about them, because 581 is the one that the media picked on to. 581 is the one that all the studies are about, because she is a woman. And that's one of the things that I think, you know, Judith has a problem with, that 501 is receiving a lot more attention than anyone else because this media frenzy that, like... I think she calls it something like the um, the emotional attraction of a, of a woman on the battlefield. She says something about, like, the, the emotional pull or something. Yeah. Which is true. There is a lot of sensational about it because it's viewed as something that's um, new and progressive and a real change. But a lot of the time in the mainstream media, those are the things that will get picked up on and those are things mm. that will provoke public interest and research yeah. a lot of the time. I'm, I'm going to be honest, they are interesting. They are they are really cool. Um, but yeah, the rest of the graves don't really have as much coverage. Um, there's one child grave that got like a bit of coverage, but I didn't really look at it because I was too interested in 581. Um, yeah. 
But one of the explanations as to why 581 at least doesn't have as many um, problems or injuries is because, as implied by the horses in her grave and her outfit, she was likely a mounted archer. Now, this connects oh. to the armor-piercing arrows that she's got. Yeah. Um, and according to a Cambridge, uh, again, I think it's the same article from the Cambridge Press, quote, able to deploy a remarkable repertoire of fighting techniques. Not really sure how they know this. <laughs> I think they were just kind of saying stuff. I don't Jane, it was the grave goods. It was the grave goods. Yeah, I think it's to do with the fact that she's got like a bunch of different types of weapons. I'm assuming um, so. But I, t- I think that's a very cool thing to say about her. I think we're just like, yeah, she was also really good at fighting, by the way. We know this. Um, but yeah, the fact that she, w- you know, the people in the cavalry are going to get less flesh wounds because less people can stab you. And if you're an archer, yeah. even then you're you're further from the action. Again, if you're in a battle, because I'm, I don't know what wars, and I don't think we do know what wars Burka was doing at that point. We don't know if they were even doing that much combat or if they were just keeping trained individuals in Nearby. case of invasion, you know? Yeah. But again, I I come back to the conclusion. I don't know if it's incorrect or not. I Would flesh wounds show in a grave that's boiled down just to the bones of the individual? I think you'd mm. have to... We know... Take the example of... Richard III, right? When we found him in that Leicestershire car park, mm. the, one of the main things was they were looking for somebody with battle injuries and you found two head wounds. I think it was one to the back of his head and there was one mm. somewhere else, but the bones had been crushed mm. and you could tell. And that was one of the main indicators. Mm. But I take it we don't have that same sort of evidence here. We, we don't have that kind of um, battle wound in the Burka individuals, which is what makes people think that maybe they weren't warriors. But as you say, it is only the more serious battle wounds that turn up on a corpse. Yeah. If you like, just get cut a bit, it's not really going to show up on your bones. If they cut you properly, it will show up. And I think, again, the assumption sort of is, if you're a Viking warrior, you're going to get that kind of cut. But if you're A, you know, not actively in a war at this point, and B, yeah. if you're not... Because if you think in your mind about vikings fighting what you're going to think about is hand to hand axe you know the shouting the berserkers that kind of thing what you've got to understand about 581 and the theory that they were a cavalry person is that that is a very different style of war i was going to say because the especially with axes that will show up that will very easily show up but you're going to get axed less if you're on a horse and if you're yeah. an archer. And that's one of the things I find really interesting about this grave as well, is that it shows a different kind of warfare from the Vikings. Yeah. Because all anyone thinks about, like the video games, the shows and stuff, it's the hand-to-hand, the axes, the massive sword, the getting your head knocked off. It's not an archer on horseback. It's not having actual strategy. And I th- the Vikings had so much more to offer than we give them credit for. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And that, but yeah, being someone on horseback could possibly explain the lack of injury. Because if you do get an injury, it's going to be, you know, less visible. You're not going to get axed in the back, yeah. as another Viking warrior might do if they were on foot. However, the hmm. uh, the other question I have is: everybody in this gravesite all mounted archers. 
or is it just a trend or is it just a trend we're seeing in this because if there are different warrior types buried here you would see different wounds no exactly and this is the kind of thing that i wish i knew about but i don't because i can't find any records of the other burka graves yeah <laughs> all i can find is 581 because 581 is all anyone cares about i care about the other burka individuals but i can't find their records and it's really sad i assume that they would not all be mounted archers i assume there would be others yeah i i think part of the thing about having less injuries is going to be about being a mounted archer you're going to have less however i think one of the main things about this is if you're not actually going into battle and there was a theory posited that i don't know if i made actual notes about that was about the the warrior social class and i talked about this earlier yeah about the concept of having warriors who don't actually combat and i I don't really know how much i looked into it and how much i because i just kind of saw it somewhere i read a couple of like articles and pieces about it and then i sort of just put it to the side but it is actually really interesting it's the idea that warriordom we know is very respected in the viking theology yeah it's it's a really great profession it's it's this it's that you then come to a point where your town doesn't have a war going on you're not invading anywhere but you still have respected individuals in your community and a way that you can represent this is by having like societal warriors yeah who are people who have the cl- the social class of warrior who have the like the training the strategic um abilities they just become knights effectively yeah basically but who aren't actually going out and fighting yeah who are just like there to be a sort of cultural symbol but not actually actively engaging in combat yeah and again without making any assumptions about burka because we can't say definitively what they were doing but you know making premature speculation about burka (laughs) it is very possible that this was one of the things they were doing and i think that that should be acceptable because you know that means she wasn't on the battlefield she wasn't you know properly doing men's stuff you know god forbid but she's a part of this social class she's got this stuff she's got this training she's got the the nefertafel and she hasn't got injuries with being on the battlefield yeah and that fits with the idea that this wasn't a town surrounded by warfare this was a town mm. filled by craftsmen and merchants exactly and if you are a trade town you are going to want to have your social warriors because if you're a trade town, you're going to have a lot of people coming in and out. You're on. You are also in a really strategic point, on yeah. in Sweden. So you're going to have people there to say, if you want to come and invade my town, we have a large garrison, and yeah. you can't. You can't stop us, right? You can't come and invade yeah. us while you're coming off and and dropping your beads and your silver. You're not also going to bring soldiers because we've got our our cavalry and we've got our soldiers. Yeah. So it would be relevant for Burka to have them, even if they weren't actively engaging with them in combat. Yeah. 
because they'd be protecting the tradesmen and they'd be protecting these people yeah. and showing that this was a wealthy place that was also connected to their Viking heritage until the 10th century when they all went off to Sigtuna. Yeah. Uh, the, I think the other thing, question I'd probably come from that is, was this a class that people worked up to? So say if you were a merchant got wealthy, could you then adopt these traditions and those grave goods? Would people make that conversion or was it very much a hereditary thing? Because if it's a wealthy town, which I'm assuming this is, mm. would you th therefore not be, as you say, we're not engaging in warfare, but you're showing your upper classes mm. of your society that might not be warriors themselves? I am going to have to give you the most depressing answer in the world, which is, I don't think we can know. Yeah. I, I personally don't know. Yeah. And it's one of the things, the Vikings did not have that culture of writing things down. Even we today don't really write down, you know, about progression from social classes. I, I just don't think it's I think it's one of those things where you can speculate and you can theorize but in many ways I'm not sure we can even really have like proof for it and I think it's a it's a good question and it's a good thing to consider but I don't think it's really anything we can answer yeah it's one of those brick walls you get to in archaeology which is really sad and annoying and again if I had a time machine oh, I, would yeah, go I, and I would take notes and I would figure things out I find myself thinking that a lot I do a lot of research and then I go mm, wish I had a time machine for this bit um yeah, it's so true because there's just so many things we just don't know mm. and it and this is sadly this is one of them because as you say the because you see social mobility in a lot of societies mm. I'm assuming there wasn't none but did it engaged to an extent that you then became warriors or was it limited to i'm a wealthy trader yeah i i really don't know i think i don't know it is pure conjecture at this point from from my end at least um because yeah. you i what i know is that you had you certainly had underclasses because you had yeah. like slavery and stuff you had thralls right okay you had like servants for the wealthy I believe that that was viking wasn't it yeah um i don't i don't believe there was mobility from that i believe though you could go farmer sell your farm do a trader i don't i don't think there was like a proper feudal system that was like keeping everyone in their box yeah so on my level of absolute pure waffle and conjecture <laughs> i would think that you would be able to if you were like you know you've inherited some stuff and you've gone you know what i want to do with my life i want to join the garrison and go and invade somewhere i would assume as well because they did a you know i spend a lot of time saying it wasn't all that they did but many viking if we move away from burka for a moment we spread our minds to the entirety of the Viking population. Especially in the early days of the Vikings, there was a lot of going places, stealing stuff, <laughs> colonising. Yeah. Like Greenland, Iceland, you just went, you took stuff. You would run out of people pretty quickly if you had only a limited amount of people who were allowed to be... That Yeah, that's, that's very true. That's I very, very true. would assume that you 
anyone was allowed to do it, you know, assuming you weren't, if you're not a thrall or a slave or whatever. Yeah. And you had, you know, I, I say you had a certain amount of, of money, of resources. Maybe, maybe not, you know? Maybe it's just anyone who wants. Pick up a sword, have a gun. Even still, if we're saying these, like, some people weren't buried with the same splendour, mm. even in... Oh, I'm only making this reference because I went so I went to um, Hastings recently. <laughs> ha- um, Harold, when he was um, defending against William when he was invading, a lot of his soldiers they weren't trained soldiers; they were common mm-hmm. people that volunteered mm-hmm. and had and had the resources they had. Now, mm-hmm. whether that was the same tradition or whether it was restricted somewhat, mm-hmm. I can't think every single soldier ever was going to be given a big grave. Now, obviously, I know we're saying with this one specifically, they're more, there are more, mm. they're more of an elite within society. However, I don't think, I don't know, I I think there's got to be a point where you have more than just the elitist, well-trained classes that are fighting. If we're going around invading places, moving on, traveling. Yeah, I think this is, this is a a very uncommon warriors grave because it's, it's a it's a large chamber grave with you know horses and it's properly decked out it's it, this is an uncommon one yeah and there are you know and there there are the boat graves that are also different i there there are going to be more people as you say and but i think one of the things about if you're a warrior i think because again this is somewhat conjecture because of like the this is just on I haven't specifically researched this recently, so, you know. Um, But I think because of, like, the Valhalla tradition and that kind of thing, if you were a warrior and you did, you know, come to a bit of a grisly fate, you would be buried with a weapon. Yeah. Because you can take that on and you can do stuff in the afterlife and have a good time. There are other halls. That's one of the interesting things. Were you aware of that? In the the, um, ancient Norse tradition, everyone talks about Valhalla as Viking heaven. Yeah. There were a bunch of other halls. I did not know this, no. Where you go and you fight people and you drink all day. And then there's loads of other halls where you do other stuff. Everyone chats about Valhalla. Everyone goes, oh, the Vikings, Valhalla. There were so many other halls that would have been way nicer. (laughs) Just me personally, I don't really love to fight and drink. Maybe you do, you know, looking at you and your your lanky little body. Maybe you get get sick after one drink. Just because you can't reach a top shelf, Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be I'd be outsized by all the Vikings. I wouldn't love it. But there were many other halls, and that's that's one of the things. Because, and as I say, that's one of the. This is connecting. It's all coming together. Everyone talks about, as as we were saying earlier, the warlike traditions of the Vikings are what got handed down and what we know about the Vikings. Yeah. And that is happening in the present day now. Everyone talks about Valhalla. When you think about the Viking religion, you think, oh yeah, heaven was Valhalla. They had many different heavens. They had many different halls. But the only one people talk about is the war one. The only yeah. one people talk about is the battle one. And that, again, is an example of how the actual rest of the culture of the Vikings is erased until it's all evaporated down to its war. And I was going to say it's warlike centre, but even then it's not a warlike centre, it's just a warlike bit. Yeah. We think it's the centre because that's all we've got left, but it's actually just just a bit of a far larger and more intricate, really interesting map. And I I I do employ you to like look up the different halls because they're very cool, and they're very like varied. 
But Van Haller isn't the only one, and it's not the only option. And I don't remember why I started talking about this, but I just care about it. Because <laughs> I wish more people were aware that there is more to the Viking religion than Valhalla. And there's more to it than the Marvel movies. <laughs> there's more fun stuff going on. I love a bit of Tom Hiddleston in a black wig, but there is more to the Viking mythology <laughs> than Thor and Loki. <laughs> No, but like you say, it is it is one of those things where <laughs> history will only preserve the things that can survive the test of time, and a lot of the time mm-hmm. in this scenario anyway, it's the things related to war. Exactly. But you, you see that in a lot of societies, everyday objects and stuff aren't saved a lot of the time, and if you're not writing things down, you've got nothing to say that they'll carry on. Mm. So, and I mean, just to draw back to last week, I think we might have touched on this. But if you if we want to talk about how um, Viking society was quite centered on war, mm. do we see an increased rights and liberties for women in the mm. society? Because as you say, I know it's kind of bringing it back to the discussion of last topic, but I just thought I'd bring it up while we're here. Mm. You've got women who are in quite elitist positions. Is that because of the war or is that because they literally just needed people to fight? I got a bit of robot noises there. Could you just repeat that question really quickly? Sorry. No, 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 that's fine. Um, yeah, my main my main thing is we were talking about it last week, how women in war-focused societies will have greater rights. Mm. To what extent do you think that the war influence played in that regard? If, it's not, if you're saying it's not all of Viking society, mm. what were its influences, influences outside of we went on big ships and fought people? <laughs> Because I'm assuming that even trade would surround that craft. If we're saying it's that focus, trade would surround mm. that craft. You'd, you'd have the blacksmiths fo- focusing on swords rather than, say, terrestrial, oh, terrestrial mm. everyday objects like just axes for trees mm. rather than massive battle axes. <laughs> yeah. It is um, an, in- an interesting question. And it is it is one of those that is difficult because it is tainted by modern perceptions yeah. and i know this is this is one of the things that we both care about it's the way that the historical record sort of taints modern views of ancient societies yeah. and that's one of the things about the vikings because you know it's the sensational stuff that remains about war we've said this time and again this episode the vikings have got an image that possibly isn't reflective of who they really were yeah but then again at a certain point war was a large part of their culture yeah. And that is something that you do have to, as much as it wasn't all of it, it was a large part of the mythos. It was a large part of um, what they were, what they were doing, how they were expanding. And even if it wasn't war, it was expeditions. Right. You, know, okay. you go on trade on an expedition. You go exploring because they 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 loved a good explore. You know, they explored America. And then they didn't war with it and they just went home. <laughs> it's a really, a really fun thing about the Vikings. Because people talk about that. You know, the way the Vikings discovered America. And then Before did Columbus. Nothing about it. No, nothing at all. It's like, you know what, I don't fancy this. Let's go home and let some European dude from Italy find it instead. Yeah, just, I think, because I, I like the way that the Vikings just went, yeah, these guys have these guys have got it. We're just going to leave. And we're going to go to fucking Greenland instead, which is just infinitely worse um, but that's the thing they went and they explored things um 
you know, and you had the, the Raven sat nav. You had a really good time. Sat rav is, is, I think, a pun from horrible history. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if you, if you, because you consider the Vikings and you think about war and you think maybe it's not all about war, but at its heart, a lot of it was about exploration. And then a lot of the time, the exploration would then turn to war when you've explored, you found a fun island, you now want to live there. The natives don't want you to live there. You're going to axe them. Yeah. And then it turns to war. But really, the, the main part is exploration. And that would, again, take us back to the discussion we were having about Egypt, where when the men aren't available, you get women doing like the household mathematics and stuff. The Yeah the stuff the trade and things so if if the men are going on the expedition the women are going to be more alive in the urban centers like burka yeah where if everyone's gone off on an expedition you've got more women in the garrison locally at home being warriors at home, at as home. Going off. and that would explain the reputation that they do have and the prestige mm. that they've accumulated in their life through seen through their graves mm. but then again we don't know how many of the women were on the expeditions. We don't really know what was going on. I know at one point it became bad luck to have a woman on board a ship, but I don't know if that was Viking or if that was like, you know, Georgians. Cause like maritime tradition is just like this thing that I don't really know that much about despite <laughs> a able family. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what was going on with women but i think it is definitely a thing that if you have a warring society where everyone's up to stuff you are going to have to utilize this is something we said last week you're going to have to utilize the rest of your population and that means more utilization of women and i think what the vikings kind of mastered was if you're utilizing the whole of your population to do stuff you can also utilise your the whole of your population to be in your military. Yeah. And even that, I think, is a lot of the time interpreted as a modern concept. It's only recently that I, it, women started predominantly coming into our armed forces. I was going to bring this up earlier, um, but it's a really interesting point about the 581 individual specifically. And I think it links quite well with the idea that only recently women have been allowed to join the military. Because before that, you know, we had yeah. you know, Joan of Arc dressing in, in men's clothes, going and doing stuff. You had um, like in the world wars, you had people going, yep, I'm a man and then joining up. There is a theory about the Burqa 581 individual that as this individual was buried with nothing at all feminine and um, was the only high-ranking individual of biological femininity, there is the question of, was her community aware that she was female? Right. That's a very good point. one of those individuals who was in disguise this is an interesting question and again a question that has absolutely no answer and is pure conjecture because 
we simply can never know yeah um, and it's a question about whether is having to disguise yourself to join the military because women aren't allowed a modern concept and the answer yeah. to that is yes because it's only really nowadays that we have like rules about being in the military and that kind of thing we don't know how the vikings considered things we yeah. do know that they had you know shield maidens and valkyries in their epics and as we said at the beginning why are they including those if women aren't allowed in the military at all why would yeah. that be but then there is the question of there are other graves that have feminine inhabitants who are um included with both who have a sword and then like some feminine stuff as well this yeah. individual has nothing feminine um and is you know buried in like i i believe it is said to be masculine clothing but then again i think it's just like fibers so we don't really know it's just yeah. you know thread that they've said is masculine um cavalry attire but you know they're the experts i don't know man <laughs> um sorry cotton is now purely male i haven't seen the threads um and there's the idea that um, nephotaphal pieces are found in male graves. But again, that's the thing about status rather than about sex. And if we take yeah. out sex from the equation and make it a class thing, it's different. But there is this conjecture. And also when this first came out in like 2017, there was a lot of stuff going on in 2017. If you think about, because you've got to think about the culture of the time when research is done about but you've also got to think about the time that research was done in and in 2017 you had trump in power who had oh, a lot yeah. of stuff about transgenderism in the military yeah. and there was a it wasn't massive and it i don't think it was particularly academic but there were a number of interpretations of this grave as a transgender individual who is biologically female but taking on a masculine role and is presenting societally as male and that is a conclusion that we cannot make. We cannot make that a conclusion. It's an idea we can posit. Yeah. But that, again, is a question of can we apply this more... I, I struggle to say modern concept because it is something, you know, transgenderism has been around for a long time. No, but it's a, it's a modern context, isn't it? Yeah, to, to call an individual transgender is something that is modern. Um. And that was something that was very relevant about a trans person in the military was very relevant in 2017, as it was something that was being banned. Um, so to find an historical example of that, or what someone would interpret as an ex historical example of that, was something that was really important to some people in 2017. Yeah, and I think that that context will shape the conclusion that you draw, mm. because it's just as much a Victorian's viewpoint on women will. Mm. That's the point. It is... That is exactly what I was going to say. It's really interesting the way that the original analysis of this patriarchal society was it's a man. And then a later analysis from 2017, when there's a lot of fo focus on transgender people in the military, it then comes to a completely different conclusion. But both of these are conclusions that are taking the standpoint of your society and putting them on this individual in the past. And the thing is... You really can't say anything about the individual in 581. We can't say whether or not her community knew that she was biologically female. We can't say how she identified. We can't say what truly she was actually doing 
Yeah. Whether she was fighting, whether she was making strategies for other people, what she was doing. All we can do is look at the evidence we have and I, I think really just ask questions. Yeah. But what we have to have in order to look at the individual in 581 is number one, respect for her and the potential that she has. Yeah. And I would say that she has the poten- the same potential as a male skeleton. And I think that's one of the really important things that we can view her as just as much of a person as the male skeletons. Because I think yeah. one of the things that's really disrespectful to the 581 individual is looking at the male graves next to her who have numerous weapons who are also assumed to be warriors calling them warriors but then calling 581 a controversy yeah taking 581 out of context to make her less of a person because at the end of the day 581 is still a dead person yeah And as many arguments as people have about her and as many theories as we have, at the end of the day, she was a person who was something. And we don't know who she was, what she was. Yeah. But whatever it was, we need to be treating it with respect. Yeah. And I feel like in some of the discussions of her, that respect is sort of stripped from her when people are too quick to push assumptions onto her whether that is completely an anti to her being a warrior assumption or in fact too pro her being a warrior assumption go oh she was she was going into battle she was doing all this but if that wasn't who she really was in many ways it's disrespectful to be pushing this to her yeah and I however think... i think mm, go on no sorry i was just gonna say <laughs> i think if that's i completely agree with what you're saying i don't want to come across wrong here at all mm. I'm only going to try. I'm only going to try and present the other side to it. But if mm. that's the only evidence we've got, is that what people are jumping on, rather than saying mm. she must be a she must she must be a soldier because of X Y Z? Mm. Is that conclusion being drawn because that's what the majority of people are going off because it's the limited evidence we have, rather mm. than their attitudes towards this person, which don't get me wrong, should be respectful and should mm. be understanding of the many possibilities that she might have been in her mm. society. But is it? Are they coming back to the fact that it's a what it's a warrior setting? Say for the pro example, it's mm. a warrior setting. You're surrounded by other soldiers. It makes logical sense, I think, anyway, to assume that she was a soldier yeah. in that scenario. A hundred percent. It is logical to assume she's a warrior, and it is basically based on the evidence. It is very likely to say that she is a warrior. And that she was a she was a strategist and she was a high one at that. But I think where flaws start to come in is where people start making assumptions about this individual based on that. Talking yeah. about because we don't have the evidence from like the lack of injury and that kind of thing that she was actively going into battle. And there have yeah. been news stories talking about she was leading people into battle. Well, we we don't know that. And I think yeah. that. that that is decidedly, in in my view, less disrespectful than the more conservative views who are going, she was not a warrior, she was she was this, she was that. Yeah. She was buried in a random costume with nothing of her own. Um however, they are still inaccurate, but yeah. both scenarios. Exactly. And I think the main point is that as much as even I am guilty of it and going, 
I personally do think she's a warrior. I think this, I think that. At a certain point, we can never really know things about archaeology. And I don't, and I think the main thing about respect is to just present it as assumption. And I think you do have to be careful and go, this is what I think of this individual. This is what I believe. This is what the evidence suggests. As opposed to trying to like properly write a history for an individual, which I think is is difficult, like especially with someone like 581. Yeah. They are, regardless of what actually happened, they are a very cool individual. They have a very interesting grave. It is very interesting to learn about, to talk about. That's why we've been here for like an hour and a half. They're incredible. (laughs) (laughs) But as and as much as they're really interesting, and when someone is really interesting like that, you want to know all the facts. And it's natural in the human brain to want to make things up if you don't know the facts, and you want to make assumptions and write a story for someone. Yeah. But that is one of the things about archaeology is that like you just can't do that. Yeah. You can't make things up about a person and give them a life story that you wish they had yeah because at the end of the day that just isn't respectful to the life that they truly led and who they really were and what you've got to work with is just assumption evidence possible conclusions and you've got to leave it there there are there are conclusions that have more evidence there are conclusions that have make more logical sense and there are, of course, conclusions that are more disrespectful than others. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there is no truth. There is no fact. And it is, like, to present anything that isn't fully, fully evidenced as, like, proper fact is just questionable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And, like I said, it's 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 one of those things because, like you say, we will never know the true extent of everything. Mm. But we, I think, anybody analysing it does have to be careful to present it as, as you say, as interpretation. It's mm. not, not nothing's definite, and it's the thing in anything in archaeology. You'll never know the full story. Mm. You can only ever go off the evidence you have and draw conclusions off that. But even then, you will have your personal biases in, mm. interpreted into that. We've discussed that throughout today, mm. so. It, I think it really comes down to what, a lot of the time, what the person is looking for in the evidence, or if you're coming at it from a specific viewpoint that's going, I want I want to find this, or if you're coming up from it and going, mm. I just want to see what I find. Yeah. I think because in many ways, you know, I hesitate to say it, but, you know, Judith is right in at least one way. And that is when she talks about the emotional draw of the female warrior. Because I yeah. know that I I certainly have bias when it comes to the 581 individual. Because I love the idea of a female knight. I a female warrior, a female knight. I was when I was a kid, I was obsessed with knights. Yeah. And I really hated that all of the knights in like books and stuff were men and boys. Yeah. Like, you know? And it's a, it's a big thing for me, looking back on history and going, actually, you know, women could do that. So I, even I have a bias when it comes to this individual. And I'm, I'm very aware of it. And I've tried to be very aware of it in this episode and tried to yeah. keep it. This is what we think about this individual. This is the assumption. And I, but that's the thing about bias, because everyone has one. And whether you think it's a positive one, whether you think it's like, 
because no, no one's going to go into something and go, my bias is awful. Like, <laughs> no one's going to go, I am the bad guy in this situation. Um, so it is, it is really difficult to, like, actually explore your own biases when exploring a topic. And yeah. I think that's one of the things that I have found actually most interesting about researching individual 581. Because I think that I've certainly have found my immediate response to people attacking the um, interpretation of her warriordom is quite defensive. Because I feel this need to defend her. But then again, I don't actually know if I'm defending her correctly. I don't know truly yeah. who she was. And it's difficult. And then you've just got to take a step back and go, okay, I know this is what I want to be true, but is this what the evidence reflects? Yeah. And anyways, for the individual in 581, at least in, in my own biased view, I'm quite lucky. The evidence really does sort of reflect what I want to be true, apart from like the weird wounds thing but even then there are explanations for that but you know it's all yeah it's all quite fun um but it it is one of those interesting things to um explore because you know the victorians had their bias we started off this episode talking about you know the victorian bias of the vikings and now we've got a modern one and what many people many people would talk about like feminist archaeology which has become quite a thing recently in like the last few decades as a biased interpretation in many ways, it's just a more scientific one where you're actually osteologically analysing things and going, actually, their women existed. Yeah. But it is looking at things with a certain gaze and a certain aim. Yeah. And it's, it is really difficult. Yeah, and I think even even that, you will have, don't get me wrong, you might well use um, osteological analysis, etc. But mm. you, it depends how then you interpret that information. Exactly. You can do as many data sets as you want, but ultimately, it's only ever giving you data points that somebody themselves has to come in and interpret. Yeah, interpretation of the past is is really difficult and it's really nuanced. And I think trying to even look at yourself and then go, is this take that I have informed by my own current cultural knowledge? Yeah. And am I applying that to the past? It's really, really hard. It is, but I, it's one of the things I love about this subject because you, mm-hmm. I love the discussion it brings. T- mm-hmm. Things like this where I'm able to sit here and talk about about three, four Maybe different Maybe you just viewpoints. listen to me waffle. I am really no. sorry. <laughs> no, honestly, but it's brilliant because you get to discuss these things. There's three, four different viewpoints all talking about a bit of DNA mm-hmm. enamel that they found on somebody's tooth. <laughs> and her and it's brilliant. And <laughs> and her own but still it's it's brilliant and like i said it's like you say it's trying to be aware of your own biases but at the same time trying to call people out on their on theirs mm. and doing that a with respect to whatever you're analyzing mm. but also to an extent that you're not completely disproving anything that anybody suggests there yeah. will always be somebody will always be i think roughly on the right lines it really depends mm. to what to what extent and what angle they're approaching it from yeah, because the, there is, I know, I know, I said there is no truth, but like there is a truth. There was a truth at one point, but we we just we don't know it now. We don't know it. Yeah, it's gone in the mists of time, and there is going to be someone who is right, but we just don't know who that is. And there is evidence that supports people. There is evidence that detracts. But even because I think the thing is, even if you are a hundred percent right about anything in archaeology, 
Yeah. You can never really know it. And you're yeah. sort of going to have to sort of say, this is what I think. Because even if you're 100% right, you don't know that. And you no. can't say with certainty that you are 100% right. Because that would be disrespectful to the deceased individual. Which is yeah. something that I find really interesting. Like the just, I think we talked about this at our summer school. About like the respect that people have for the dead. Oh, yeah. Very missing when it comes to archaeological research. And yeah, it's, it's very relevant now. I mean, like the country's in a period of mourning. Yeah. For context, um, the Queen's funeral was today. That's a, that was a really interesting one. Because, you know, this is completely off topic, and I'm really sorry. Or, well, not really. You know, it's a, it's a dead woman, isn't it? Because we talk about the, um, the display of, of dead people in museums. Yeah. And the moral repercussions and the lack of respect. What about when everyone was queuing up to go and see the corpse of the Queen? How does that compare? <laughs> um, I think with that, A, it's modern. Everybody's like, oh, I want to be a part of history. Mm. But also at the same time, they were only looking at a flag. Mm. It was only a flag draped over a box, ultimately. Mm. Um, and I think with that, it was more an emphasis on people trying to pay their respects to somebody that I think a lot of people felt like they knew, rather mm. than an interpretation of, I'm going to put this person on display yeah. Especially in the circumstances, while she while she died up north, and people couldn't be in immediate contact, while they couldn't be in immediate contact with her, I think that was quite a big thing that um, the royal family was trying to do is to be able to provide that connection with people. Mm. And if you see the reaction of the royal family in the way that they've acted, it seems like they're trying to have a much more hands-on approach to monarchy. Mm. Um, and whether that's the first stage of it to be able to have that open access towards somebody that's recently passed and who's been a who's been a linchpin for our for our culture for seventy odd years, I think that was probably the main main thing with that. I just think it's it's amazing how you had one. It's, it's interesting when you think about the fact that in that room there was there was one deceased individual and everyone is very very respectful of it but if you go there are places where there are the corpses of previous you know not of our culture but of other cultures nobles and even like kings and queens on display yeah and they are treated with far less respect when there are multiple yeah. in the room when they are fully visible and people are I, just like, taking yeah. pictures having a but i think at that point, they've they're set up. There's one that's out to be a tourist attraction, and two, mm. I think people are so far removed from it, they don't have the same approach and the same sensitivity mm. towards the towards it. Yeah, I think just like res respect for the ancient dead is a really interesting one. Yeah, like there there is a there is a line, and at at a certain point, it's hard because like is analysis disrespectful. Because like you have, you've disturbed their their grave, their resting place. Many cultures yeah. believe that you need to have a certain grave set up in order to like progress to the next life. Have you ruined their chances of that by digging them up? I mean, yeah. if you're if you're removing their DNA for analysis, you are, you know, disturbing their their very bones. Is yeah. disrespectful. 
and like I, I find skeletons really exciting. Is that disrespectful to be like excited, interested in a corpse? Um, and it's it's really hard because there is there is a level of respect and there's a level of interest, and it's about whether your like search for knowledge overrides that individual's like rights to be buried in the way that they believe they should be yeah exactly yeah. and it's it's a really difficult question and a really interesting one but i think it's one that definitely centers at at the feet of our topic and mm. our faculty because it ultimately it's down to it's down to the people researching a lot of the time to make those sort of decisions about how much they want to use that evidence mm. and i on that ponderous thought, I think we no, should... No, like I said, it's, that is probably a really good point to end on. <laughs> so, if I'm perfectly honest, I don't know what I'm doing for the next topic. I'm going to have to go research something. I need to be asleep in nine minutes in order to get the appropriate amount of sleep for tomorrow morning. Right, okay. Nine minutes. That really does show how late we're doing this. Nine minutes, and then it's eight hours until 6.30. Right, cool. Makes me so upset. I hate getting up in the morning. It makes me so sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's not fun. I spend all my time going, oh, yeah, I'm going to be really productive at the weekend. And then I spend the entire weekend just sleeping off how horribly tired I am every yeah. weekday. Yeah. <laughs> I get to Friday, I'm thinking, God, I can't wait to sleep until a reasonable time <laughs> that isn't 6.30 in the morning. Doesn't that say a lot about our society? Anyway. <laughs> get on the train. What time do you get up? Quar- uh, I go up at six, quarter to eight yeah. with my trainers. What do you what do you do of the morning if your boss if your train is quarter to eight? Well I get there eight. I get there by ten past eight. I've then got half an hour to kill. So I just I'll, I'll go to the library to work. No, but what do you what do you do before you go to your train if you're getting up at six and then Well, I need half an hour to walk to the station. Oh yeah, yeah. And that other hour and 15 minutes is me taking ages to get ready and eat breakfast. Yeah, anyway, I think that's, um like, like we said before, that's a really nice note to end on. And a very, I think, important message, especially in our field anyway. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think, unless you've got anything else to touch on, I think that's a pretty good place to cut, like call it there. Yeah, I, I think I've covered all that I have to cover. All right, brilliant. Well, thank you, Jane. Thank you, Luke. And it's good good night, good afternoon. I don't know what the time is people are listening to this. <laughs> is anyone listening to this at all? <laughs> That's a very good question. Other than your dad. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about that. Anyway, this has been the Grave News Podcast. We will see you guys later. Bye.